you haven't been with us over the last two Sundays, we've been working our way through a sermon that Jesus gave at the end of John chapter 6. This sermon is known as the Bread of Life Discourse. Now, though we've already kind of tackled the majority, the meat, the substance of this particular sermon, there is still yet one concept kind of woven throughout the text that demands a thorough examination because it really, in a lot of ways, goes to the very heart of what Jesus is communicating with the sermon. Now, let's set the stage for what we're going to discuss this morning, beginning with verse 51 of John chapter 6. Jesus The tail end of this sermon, the Bread of Life Discourse, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, and I shall give for the life of the world. So the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Before we conclude our time together in this amazing sermon, and the conclusion will come next next week, a discussion about the true meaning of communion is warranted mainly because many take this exhortation of Jesus to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and they twist it to mean some things that, frankly, it doesn't. And Luke chapter 22 verses 19 and 20, as Jesus is celebrating the beginning of Passover with his disciples. This would be, by the way, the very night Jesus and the disciples would leave an upper room after the Seder. This would be the night that they go to Gethsemane to pray. Jesus would be betrayed by Judas, would be arrested, would be tried. The next day, he would be executed. This is his final moments with his disciples. But we read that during this this dinner, that Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And there's no question that Jesus in this moment, instituting the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, is directly tying concepts back to this bread of life discourse. Now please note that at a minimum, all Christianity believes that in instituting communion, Jesus gave both significance and deep meaning to both the bread and the cup. We can all agree on that. And yet, arguments, disagreements, divisions have arisen over kind of the muddled nature of the phrases that Jesus uses when he refers to the bread as being his body and the cup as his blood. For example, the Roman Catholic Church holds to a bizarre position known as transubstantiation. The word trans means change. Catholics believe and teach that during the actual consecration of the Lord's Supper by the presiding priests, 
The physical elements of the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, experience in that moment during their consecration a literal transformation, no longer being bread and wine, but being the actual body and blood of Jesus. This reality explains why you're not allowed to handle the communion elements and why they must be administered by a priest. In the 1500s, Martin Luther, a reformer, Protestant, he taught a variation of this position known as consubstantiation. The word con, it means with. Luther believed that the bread and the wine do not become the literal body and blood of Jesus like the Catholics, but instead Luther taught they coexisted with the body of Christ so that the bread and wine remain both bread and wine and the body of Christ at the same time. Kind of confusing. John Calvin would add that that miracle took place only in a spiritual sense, enabled by a person's faith. A contemporary of Luther, Swiss reformer Zwingli, he argued that the bread and the wine were, quote, mere symbols that represented the body and the blood of Jesus. Historically, Zwingli ended up debating this very issue with, with Luther at Marburg. And in their debate, Zwingli made the case that just as Jesus said, I am the vine and I am the door, and we understood he wasn't speaking literally, in the same way what Jesus is saying about the bread and the cup should be seen as being symbolic. I would add that this position is largely consistent with the illustration in the bread of life discourse of Jesus being the bread of life. We know he's not being literal there, but speaking illustratively. And kind of a twist to Zwingli, David Guzik writes this, quote, according to scripture, we can understand that the bread and the cup are not mere symbols, but are powerful pictures to partake of and enter into as we see the Lord's table being the new Passover. Now, it's been said that while the Roman Catholics overemphasize the elements, Protestants underemphasize them. And there's some truth there. As you work your way through these various positions of what Jesus is truly articulating, there are a few overarching concepts that you need to keep in mind. First, after Jesus instituted communion, he still refers to the elements immediately following as being literal bread and wine. In Mark 14, verse 25, Jesus will declare right after instituting communion, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. No doubt Jesus still saw the fruit of the vine as remaining the fruit of the vine. Secondly, as you kind of wade through these various issues, there's no indication, both scripturally or historically, that the disciples ever viewed the bread and the wine as literally being the body and blood of Jesus. If this had been their understanding in the moment when Jesus is saying it, it's likely they would not have participated, considering that both consuming flesh and blood was outlawed in Leviticus 17, verse 4, and Jesus did not violate the law. He fulfilled it. Thirdly, Jesus instituted communion before his actual crucifixion. Like, think about it. Like, there's no question that in the first moment that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, that the bread and the wine couldn't be Jesus' body and blood 
because he hadn't died yet. Fourth, according to Hebrews 10, the Bible is clear that Jesus was sacrificed once for sin. It's what makes transubstantiation kind of an abomination. The Bible teaches that Jesus' one-time sacrifice was more than enough to atone for our sins. The fact simply remains that there is zero scriptural evidence that a Christian needs to maintain their salvation through a continual partaking of the Lord's Supper as Roman Catholic doctrine communicates. Finally, and it's this point that we'll spend the rest of our time together discussing, but in context of the illustrative nature of the bread of life discourse, and in light of the fact that Jesus reiterates these very statements about the bread and the blood during the Passover Seder, specifically the Passover Seder, it's clear that Jesus was seeking to redefine accepted and important symbols and was not speaking literally. Transubstantiation, consubstantiation can't be an accurate interpretation. Last Sunday, we spoke at length as to what Jesus meant when he discussed eating his body and drinking his blood. And just to quickly recap, in no way was Jesus saying that you had to eat his actual body or drink his actual blood to be saved. Instead, Jesus throughout the sermon declares kind of over and over and over again that for a person to experience this incredible work of everlasting life that the Son of Man gives all that person had to do was come to Jesus and believe in him. Friend, the only act required of you for salvation is faith. Faith in the larger work of Jesus accomplished on the cross of Calvary. As I mentioned last Sunday, it's only with that larger understanding of the illustration that Jesus, using these phrases, eating his, his body and drinking his blood, make any sense at all. If he's speaking literally, it's weird. If he's continuing the metaphor, it makes sense. In its most simplistic form, just as bread and wine are only useful for the physical man, if they enter the physical man. So Jesus must indwell the spirit of man for there to be spiritual life. It's a simple analogy. Again, the idea of eating and drinking was not meant to be taken literally, but to be seen illustratively. In a culture built upon strict dietary laws, you were what you ate, in a very literal sense. You see, eating and drinking indicated oneness in this culture, oneness with Jesus in context. And the idea of the body and the blood was Jesus' way of, of trying to take this illustration and connect it to the sacrificial system within context. It is the identifying of ourselves with Jesus' body and both his crucifixion and later his resurrection. That's what he's talking about in this sermon. And in the end, this is what communion exists to remind us of. That it's essential we identify with Jesus both on the cross and in his resurrection. Sadly, while most Christians comprehend the importance of Jesus' crucifixion, 
We realize why, why it's important. Few, though, know the mechanism for how any of these things work legally. Like the actual application of them. And note, if you don't understand how it is that Jesus actually saves you, then you'll never fully understand the significance of communion. The answer to these things is found in what I call the doctrine of transference. Let me define the doctrine of transference. Transference is the act of transferring sin from a person to a sacrificial offering within the right standing of that sacrifice coming back to the individual. Others call the doctrine of transference this, this great exchange. In the Levitical law, the idea of transference was central to the entire sacrificial system established by God in the law. In a general sense, aside from identification, the act of you laying your hands upon an innocent sacrifice, it was all about you transferring your sin to the sacrifice. It was then as a result of that transference, the death of that sacrifice was therefore accepted by God as a payment for your sin. This is how a sacrifice in the Levitical model yielded atonement. Your sin transferred onto the offering that was killed for you. Furthermore, with now the debt of your sin being satisfied by the offering, blood from that sacrifice could now be used to cleanse. It could be used as a purifying agent. Whatever the blood from the accepted sacrifice was sprinkled upon was declared to be ceremonially clean in the eyes of God. And, and note, I'm not going to bore you with it, but you go back through the Old Testament, there is example after example after example of this very process being used in the priestly work around the temple. Sacrifice, transference accepted by God, the blood's now a purifying agent, and it was sprinkled on all kinds of things to purify it. And yet, here's the problem. The problem with the Levitical model of transference was twofold. First, the process of transferring sin from a human to an innocent animal only afforded the individual a temporary payment and a provisional cleansing because the sacrifice simply wasn't adequate. As the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 10 verse 4, correctly observes, it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Atonement, in the Levitical perspective, was at best seen as a covering for sin. Covering, temporary, provisional. And not a complete cleansing. It wasn't permanent, it was temporary. You see, the frustrating reality, when it came to transference is that the only way a, a person could permanently satisfy the debt of sin in order to bring about a complete cleansing would be for human sin to be transferred not to an animal, right? But just logically speaking, what kind of sacrifice would be warranted? Well, what you would need would be a sinless human sacrifice. But this obviously leads to a, a significant problem, doesn't it? Even if such a sacrifice existed, the very act of transference would be a crime. 
You see, a sinful man laying his hands upon a sinless man would have been seen as both unlawful and unjust. To this point, the only legal way that transference could occur between a human sinner and a human sacrifice would be for two things to happen. A, the sinless sacrifice would have to willingly decide to take sin upon himself. And two, the sacrifice would also have to act as a de facto high priest and then offer himself to die for that sin. The sinner, for this to be just and accepted, can't be involved in either decision. And what's more, the work itself has to be done on the person's behalf without the person's involvement because you're sinful. Which brings us back to the cross. In John 6, verse 51, Jesus said, I shall give my flesh for the life of the world. The great reality of this event, the crucifixion, is that Jesus' death on the cross paid for the sins of the world because Jesus, who the Scripture says knew no sin himself, was willing to act as both the sacrifice, he willingly transferred upon himself the sins of the world, and Jesus was willing to act as the priest. He willingly offered his own life to incur the wrath of God so that the debt of your sin might be sanctified. Jesus is both the sacrifice and he's the high priest. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, we're told of Jesus. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. This is a high priest who does not need daily, as those other priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this Jesus did once and for all, note, when he offered up himself, sacrifice and high priest. But it gets even better than that. Because your sin was transferred to Jesus on the cross, not only is it now by his death that the debt of your sin is permanently satisfied, an adequate offering, but now for the first time, a complete cleansing from sin is, is made available how? Once again, going back to the sacrificial model, by his blood. Again, in Hebrews 9, we read, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purification of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the internal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The body of Christ took away your sin. Took it away. While the blood of Christ transferred back to you the righteousness of Jesus. Transference or just a great exchange. And, and this is why the Bible declares that you are now justified in Christ Jesus. That when God sees you because of this transference, he sees you just as if I'd never sinned, just as if you'd never sinned. Think of it. The most amazing aspect is that when God sees you right now, friend, right now, this very moment, no matter what you've done this week, 
No matter how poorly you've stepped in it, right in this very moment, God sees you justified. He sees you righteous. Why? Because when he sees you, he actually sees Jesus. We know that the old covenant of the law was inadequate. It was inadequate because it demanded we make continual sacrifices. Because the blood of an inadequate offering could only provide a temporary covering. However, because Jesus was a human, sinless, willing sacrifice, what he did on the cross is more than sufficient. It's lasting and eternal. The new covenant, in contrast to the old covenant, no longer requires you to make any sacrifices at all. Why? Because Jesus' blood permanently cleanses you of all unrighteousness, past, present, and future. This is such an important concept that I want to give you just very quickly a few scriptures just to back it up. This is a continual idea throughout all of the New Testament. Hebrews 10, we've been in Hebrews a bit, but verses 10 through 14, we read, For we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifices for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In Romans 5, verse 9, Paul writes, much more than having been justified by Jesus' blood. We shall be saved from the wrath through him. Ephesians 1, 7, in Jesus, we have redemption, how? We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. 1 John 1, 7, it's the blood of Jesus Christ, that cleanses us from all sin. Romans, uh, Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. Revelation 5, verse 9, John writes of Jesus, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. I could go on and on and on. Do you see why Jesus' work on the cross was so revolutionary it's radical. It's contrary to every other world religion that gives you things to do to show your merit before God. When Christianity says there's nothing you could do, so God became a man, and it's by his work that you're saved. The cross is revolutionary, but do you also see why this oneness Jesus discusses in the Bread of Life discourse is so essential to your salvation? This becoming one. Don't forget the goal of transference in both the Levitical law and the New Covenant. The goal of them were the same. Right standing with God. Brought about by the atonement and cleansing of the blood of a sacrifice. However, the way that transference works in each instance is radically different. In the Levitical law, transference required of the guilty to make continual sacrifices to atone for sin in order to be right with God. All the man had in the Old Covenant were his ineffective sacrifices. 
However, in the new covenant, transference requires nothing at all of the guilty. Because a sacrifice was made by Jesus to atone for your sin, making you, declaring you permanently right with God. Think of it this way. In the new covenant, all a man needs is Jesus because he's proven to be an able sacrifice and won the law. Transference was all about you, the condemned, laying your hands upon a sacrifice to achieve a right standing before God. But in the other, the new covenant, transference was all about a sacrifice laying down his life in order to make you right with God and won the law. You looked upon your sacrifice to earn the forgiveness of God. But in the other, the new covenant, your faith looks upon the sacrifice who gives you the forgiveness of God. This is why the old covenant was an agreement with God based in works, while the new covenant is an agreement with God founded upon God's great goodness, His love, we call it grace. Because of the insufficiency of the Levitical sacrifice and the effectiveness of Jesus' work on the cross, the satisfying of your debt, atonement, and the cleansing of your sin, justification and sanctification, cannot be earned through the sacrifices you make to God. Instead, these things are given by the sacrifice God made for you. Jesus says in verse 53 of John 6, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. This transference is what he's talking about. Paul, as a matter of fact, builds on this concept, writing in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He took our sin, because we couldn't give it, but He took it, and then He died for it. So back to communion, and how all these things tie together. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, He does something fascinating. Jesus specifically ties himself and the crucifixion with two elements. Two elements that had been part of the Passover Seder for 1,500 years. And he does this in order to illustrate that the work he accomplishes on the cross is important and why it's essential we identify, become one with these things. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 25, we're told that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he adds, Do this in remembrance of me. Now, while the Seder dinner, and this word Seder, the word Seder just means order. It means program. It's the order of a, of a dinner. A dinner that, by the way, had 15 different parts, which were all symbolic. And yet, bread played a significant role in three of them. So keep in mind, when Jesus says, take, eat, here's the bread, and when he mentions the cup, he's referring to two elements in the Passover Seder that he's now redefining. Now, bread played a significant role in three of the 15. First, bread was included in the fifth step of the Seder meal, known as the yahats. It means the breaking of the matzah. 
Early in the dinner, three pieces of stacked matzah bread. And matzah is just the unleavened flat bread. There's, there's, there's no yeast. It doesn't rise. It illustrates sinlessness. But three pieces of stacked matzah are presented to the father of the home, the host of the Seder. And significantly, the middle piece of the three, which was known as the afikomen, was removed from the other two and broken by the father. It was then wrapped carefully in linen and hidden away in the house for later in the meal. Now, the next time that bread comes into play was directly before the main course when the eighth step, known as the mahatsi matzah, or the eating of the matzah, occurred. At this point in the Seder, these two remaining pieces of unbroken matzah bread, they're passed around the table. And they're dipped into the same dish and consumed by all that are there. Please keep in mind, at this final Passover Seder, it's at this point in the meal, according to Mark's gospel, that Judas, Jesus identifies Judas, he gets up and he leaves the table. Now once the main course had been finished, and the Seder was nearing completion, the twelfth step, known as the Zafumen, or the eating of the Afikomen, finally took place. At this point in the dinner, the father would ask for this hidden Afikomen, to be retrieved and presented. Then the father, before he distributed these broken pieces, would explain the significance. Now keep in mind, at this point in the meal, the 12 disciples, 11, Judas is left, they've heard the same explanation given by the host at the presenting of the Afikomen their entire lives for 1,500 years. These three pieces of matzah bread represented Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this middle piece, the afikomen, had signified Isaac. The father would, would describe how Isaac willingly surrendered himself to be sacrificed in obedience to the will of his father, Abraham. Literally, before the consuming of the afikomen, the father would declare concerning this piece of matzah. He would say, quote, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. And yet, when Jesus and his disciples, this final night in the upper room, when they reached this moment in the Seder, instead of making this traditional statement that the men had heard forever and that had been stated for 1,500 years, we're told that Jesus flips it on its head. He says, he takes the bread. He breaks it. He gives thanks. He says, this is my body. This has nothing to do with Isaac. This has nothing to do with the patriarch. This is my body, the Afikomen, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, I, as I play the scene out, I, I, I see Jesus breaking the Afikomen and this, this point, passing it around in little wafer sizes. And they would all partake together. Now understand, Jesus is crystal clear that the afikomen, this middle piece of unleavened bread, it no longer represented Isaac. Jesus is clear, it now represents what? His body 
broken for you. You see, on the cross, the Son, Jesus, the middle person of the Trinity, willingly offered his body to bring about a sacrifice to atone for your sin. This was a work that Jesus didn't need to do for himself as he was sinless, but was instead a work Jesus did, it says it in the text, for you. You couldn't do it. He did it for you. Instead of incurring the wrath of God on the account of a debt of sin, I could never pay on my own. Jesus willingly took my sin and offered himself in my place and yours. This is why every time you come to the table and you take that little piece of unleavened bread, the afikoman, you've been commanded to remember what? To remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross on your behalf and more than just remember it, identify with it. This is why Jesus says, eat it. Consume it. May it become part of you. The very act of eating the bread illustrated both a oneness and a communion with Jesus' sacrifice. And while you do this, you're to remember that Jesus willingly chose to bear your sin, that he willingly took your place, that he willingly offered himself as a sacrifice so that you might be spared a judgment you deserved. The bread serves to remind you that it was Jesus who was whole and broken so that we who are broken might be made whole. But that's not all. Then we're told Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, throughout the Passover Seder, there were four cups of wine, drunk specifically to remember each of the four promises that God had given to Moses to give to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. I'll just read you the section. God declared, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. First, in order, you had the cup, it was known as the cup of sanctification directly tied to this, I will bring you out from under the burdens. This would then be followed by a second cup, known as the cup of deliverance. I will rescue you from your bondage. Third, there would be the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then finally, the Seder would conclude with the cup of restoration. I will take you as my own people. While all four cups have deep significance in their own right, there's, a, there's an order, right? You see, following the eating of the afikoman, you had this third cup of wine, known as the barak. It was the cup of redemption. It would be presented. This cup of wine symbolically represented the shed blood of the sacrificial lamb that was applied to the doorposts in Egypt, causing the plague of death to pass over. It's where we get the idea of Passover. The cup of redemption follows the eating of the calf, afikoman, which is fascinating, right? 
Because when Jesus took a cup, it wasn't just any cup. It was specifically the cup of redemption that Jesus decides to redefine. Notice the emphasis of Jesus' words. Focus specifically on the cup and not its contents. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whereas the bread had always been symbolic of his body, the actual wine contained in the cup of redemption represented the blood of, of an insufficient offering. When Jesus says this cup, this cup of redemption that had always been filled with something inadequate is a new covenant in my blood, Jesus is saying that the cup, it's always represented redemption, but now it would be filled with something sufficient. The cup would remain the same, but Jesus would replace its contents. In this moment, with his disciples, Jesus is telling them here that redemption would no longer rely on an old covenant filled with the blood of an inadequate sacrifice. Now and forever redemption, it would rely on a, he says it, a new covenant sealed by the blood of a sufficient sacrifice. He says, my blood. This is why every time you come to the table and take up the cup of redemption, you're to remember the results of the sacrifice Jesus made for you on the cross are much more glorious than just atonement. It was through his sacrifice that you are now given a permanent righteousness, rightness with God, an exchange. Atonement, the taking of the sin, the blood, the giving of righteousness. Yes, Jesus' body was broken as the sacrifice to satisfy a debt you could never pay. But it's now by his blood that you are cleansed once and for all from sin, being made permanently right with God. It's why we sing. What can wash away my sin? It's a question posed by the hymnist, right? But then he answers, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that does what? That makes me white as snow. I'm saved from a debt I could never pay, but then I'm cleansed. For in your sin may have been transferred to Jesus on the cross, but most incredibly, it was in the spilling of his blood that now transfers back to you Jesus' righteousness. Finally, I'm struck by the reality that in regards to both the bread and the cup, Jesus commands us to what? He says, do this in remembrance of me. Clearly this phrase, do this, was not a suggestive term, was it? It's strong. It's directive. There's an importance to doing this, to remember. Understand, we're to partake of the bread and the wine, not because the elements become literally the body and blood of Christ and are therefore necessary for salvation. Heaven forbid. But we're to come and partake of the bread and the wine because of the overarching imagery and the profound implications these things represent. 
in line with the doctrinal reasoning of Zwingli and the healthy reminder of David Guzik that the elements are, are more than just mere symbols. We should see the act of taking the elements as being more than just an intellectual ex- exercise whereby we remember the work of Jesus on the cross. No, 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 no. The act of coming to the table should be a moment we commune. We commune with and become one with the resurrected Jesus. Please understand, communion is not just symbolic. This is why Paul presents a warning to those who come, to unbelievers who partake. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 29, he says, Whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so let each, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Honestly, I guess the truth is that this very word partake, it's probably limiting in and of itself. You see, by eating the bread and drinking the cup, We call it communion, which implies what? Not just partaking, but communing. It's communion. It describes an interaction. With whom? Do this in remembrance of me. It's a connecting with Jesus in the Spirit. And it's a mystery, friend. I don't know how it all works. I don't. But when you come to the table, it should be a reminder of transference, a reminder of a great exchange given to me by Jesus. It should be oneness. In many ways, that taste. It's not an accident that Jesus took the afikomen and the cup of redemption. And it's not an accident that the afikomen was unleavened bread, which represented sinlessness. You see, that bread... It's not the most tasty bread in the world, is it? You come to communion and you take the wafer, it's dry. In some regards, it's a little bitter. The Afrikaman's not not quite enjoyable, and and I think that's important because it reminds me as I eat it of, of a bitterness that Jesus had to die for my sins. That should be a bitter pill. It should be sobering. And yet, how amazing it is that the experience of eating this bitter bread is immediately followed up with what? The taste of fine wine. While the reality of what redemption required of Jesus, yes, it's difficult to swallow. Friend, the results of his sacrifice in my life, man, they're sweet and satisfying, and glorious. I wish Jesus didn't have to die to do it, but he did, and he did it willingly. And then I get this this incredible blessing of grace back. It's interesting to note that from the first Passover to roughly the year 1869, I mean, we're talking 3,300 years, the cup, was always filled with actual wine. And in actuality, it was during the temperance movement 
that a Methodist preacher who was a staunch prohibitionist figured out how to pasteurize grape juice specifically to be used in the Lord's Supper so Christians didn't need to drink alcohol. This Methodist preacher, his name was Thomas Bramwell Welch. It's where we get Welch's grape juice. You see, just as unleavened bread was important, it was important for what it represented, the sinlessness of Christ, that its taste was to be bitter, not just symbolic, but an experience eating it. There is something, I think, lost, something important lost, when we substitute wine with grape juice. In his book, What Would Jesus Drink?, which might be the, the first WWJD I've ever really liked, Brad Winnington, he writes that of the 247 Bible references to alcohol, he did that, I didn't, he, he records that 40 are negative, speaking of drunkenness, etc. 62 references are totally neutral. But there's an overwhelming majority, 145 references in Scripture to wine that are positive. You see, wine in the Scriptures, it's not an accident that it's being used here by Jesus. Because it is, as well as the unleavened bread, a picture. Wine is a picture in Scripture of God's blessings. It's presented as a, as a picture of the joy of the Lord. A joy we should possess in the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, unlike bread, which yields substance, wine, it produces an experience. In moderation, wine eases a person of their burdens, doesn't it? You've had a long day, a glass of red wine. It fosters merriment. You see, wine should remind me of the effects of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who in my life does what? Yields an experience. Fruit, love, joy, and peace. You see, it's not an accident that for wine to develop its sweetness and its effect, that death first had to occur. More than death, a grape to become wine had to first be crushed and then stored away what a picture of the crucifixion and Jesus being put in a tomb. It's clear that through Jesus' death, the Holy Spirit would be given to provide us joy. You see, we're to drink of the cup, to be reminded of the experience of new life we've been given in Christ Jesus after we've tasted the bitterness of what it required. In the end, it's critical you never forget that you come to the table that when you come to the table, the essence of your salvation and the incredible favor and life you've been given by God was not found in a Levitical model that demanded you offer more and more sacrifices. Communion tells me what? That my entire relationship with God is based in a new covenant built on nothing more than the sacrifice Jesus made on my behalf and me identifying with it. 
we come to the table not only to remember these truths, we come to the table to commune with Jesus and the Spirit. It's holy. It's reverent. It's not just symbolism. There's a connectedness. Communion. It's a tangible experience. It's personal, isn't it? Communion. It adds material to the spiritual. And it invites me to participate. Communion is essential in our lives as Christians. Because it always serves to bring us back to the cross. Not just reminding us of what Jesus did, but reminding us that all we're asked to do is partake, to commune, to relate. It's not religion, it's relationship. It's identifying with Jesus, a work he did for me. Communion is about grace. I don't do anything. I just enjoy something. Communion, it emphasizes the extent of my involvement. I come, as Jesus said, come. And then I receive something. And then I identify with it. And then I eat it, and I drink it, and I become one with Jesus in an act of faith. Charles Spurgeon said, I think the moments we are nearest to heaven are those we spend at the Lord's table. I completely agree. It's why we have communion available every Sunday. As the hymnist wrote and we sing, my hope, and I hope yours, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And so, Father, Lord, we want to let these truths...